Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. When thinking about education, and I do consider myself an educator, I often think that it's not like we need a building in which to teach. I mean, you can teach without a building. You can think back to Socrates. And after all, he was conducting his teaching in an open-air market called the Agora, where he influenced younger generations to the point where he was forced to drink hemlock. But at the same time, a good educational structure can help. I have taught in a variety of environments, and I have seen educational technology go from transparencies to PowerPoint and now OpenAI. I have taught in amphitheater setups, rooms with rolling desks, long tables, and even small conference rooms. I've used chalkboards and whiteboards and smartboards, and I've been in old buildings and new buildings and everything in between. Despite all of this, the question always remains. And the question I always ask myself, self, how do we best create a structure in which teachers and students can come together to create optimal learning experiences? There is a saying in design that all design projects are political in nature. That's because they involve different stakeholders, points of view, and different institutional power players that are vying for supremacy to get their points of view heard and executed. Designing educational environments is by no means different. In fact, to me, quite a lot worse. Working for about a quarter century now in higher ed has taught me that when going into an educational design project, we need to be prepared to blend the old and the new, the young and the established, the administration, that's right, the administration and the faculty, corporate thinkers and academic thinkers, and many, many, many other groups. All of this makes the process of creating a design for education, very arduous before the first cornerstone is laid. And Wyatt shows us that the connection between both place and people is so important. And with that, today in the Experience by Design studio, we are excited to welcome Mary Rupenthal. And Mary is a registered architect. She's an ESG, that's Environmental, Social, and Governance Advocate and Advocate... Uh, <laughs> ESG Advocate and Associate Principal at HEAD, which is one of the oldest and largest architecture and engineering firms in the country. Her work is really interesting and is where she oversees pre-K to 12th grade in community education projects. And she's a specialist in flexible and adaptive learning environments and incorporating wellness into educational and space design. So obviously, if every design project is political, we could definitely use some ideas about how do we help and make sure that people are both included and well in the process. So in today's conversation, we set a baseline around the rise of mental health and wellness in not just educational spaces, but as spaces for everyday life. And so you can think about schools in this case, right? Not just as places where students go, their educational centers, but they could also be things like community centers that serve families as well as students. We're also going to dive into areas like designing with and for nature, such as ideas like biophilic design. And also like nature, we're going to explore things like dynamism in design, how things can change over time, such as spaces that can get smaller, adapt, get larger to different size groups and needs, as well as informational changes using digital technologies, you know, like screens. You might have heard of those. So there's a lot that goes on here, and it's a really exciting conversation that's going to bring us through, again, the politics of design, through people, through wellness, through place, and everything in between. So without further ado, let's dive on in and explore the art of experience by design with our guest, Barry Rupenthal. Thank you. 
memorable conversation. <laughs> yeah, before you dive in, let me actually record the conversation because the podcasts yes. work better when the conversations are recorded, oddly enough. Otherwise, it's just a conversation, right? Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, we say we had a great conversation with Mary. That has value as well, though, but um, <laughs> we can share what we talked about right. <laughs> separately. Yeah. But to, 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 to basically jump in, you know, so we're, we're chatting here um, kind of mid-summer. So, I mean, you know, Mary, we're excited to chat with you because one of the things that I was thinking about, too, as we're coming into this conversation is... I imagine summertime is insanely busy for you, right? Like this is the time when I guess because schools are typically out at this at this point. So even just thinking about a question of timeline to start us um, and like how architects get involved in, in the space, um, are you finding that this time is is busier than than typical? Like if you're in the fall or when the schools schools are in session? I guess if you're building a building, you can't really be in school. But um, I'm curious about that that, that timeline for you. <laughs> yeah, good question, Adam. There certainly is a kind of a circle or a cycle of. Um, of of things that happen typically throughout the course of a year when we're doing educational architecture. Um, you know, a lot of districts are trying to do, you know, summer projects as much as they can, like we'll scope some summer projects and, um, and the goal of, of trying to do it with the least impact to the, to the educational environment. These are often limited to like five to $7 million kind of, kind of project scope. So, um, you know, we also have a lot of, <laughs> of of projects that you know take many years to build. You know that mm-hmm. that have an eighteen month or twenty four um, month construction duration, and and for those projects, you know they're they're on active campuses. So certainly, the site logistics and safety is so important um, to for us to consider to really minimize the impact to the campus. But yes, yeah, summers are. Um, are are uh, are really fun because <laughs> we're trying to get these projects into into agency approvals so that they can be approved by early spring as soon as possible after the new year. And then um, certainly with all the procurement issues that have been happening with materials, like we try to get pre-construction happening, you know, months before summer so you can get, you know, all the materials in place so that we can just kind of blow and go. I'm working on two um, uh, transitional kindergarten modernizations of existing like 1950s buildings are on two separate campuses. So those are concurrent projects and, um, and again, start of school is like, um, mid early, early August. I feel like summers are like shorter than I ever remember them <laughs> when we have these projects going. It's just that, uh, every day becomes like a complete emergency because there's questions if they run into unforeseen conditions and, you know, we need to answer things. They accidentally poured a, uh, ADA ramp, um, drop off without the rebar. That's not the end of the world. A lot of cities don't require rebar in their sidewalks, but, you know, and it was doweled in on either side. So won't have settlement, mm. but that, that revision needs to go to the division of the state architect and get approved. So, you know, there's just like a whole cascade of things that need to happen. Um, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's good times. So yeah, I've been, <laughs> I've been jumping around. We have two other site improvement projects that are going on. They're like exterior outdoor learning environments that, um, that we're designing for. Um, there's been a lot of COVID funding around, or, you know, COVID funding that schools are, are putting to use in various ways. I walked to campus yesterday that was, that was doing a, a ton of great outdoor learning spaces, um, shaded areas that allow for a variety of different, so this is a, um, a university project. Uh, that allow for a variety of seating outside that's shaded, uh, you know, small and larger groups. And they have Wi-Fi out there and electrical outlets so kids can charge and work outside and really turn the campus into, you know, the whole entire campus into an educational environment. So, 
Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's busy stuff. But yeah, that, they were having summer school on the campus. So there were students walking around, and again, site state safety is uh, really important when you have work work progressing while students are trying to move around. One of the things you mentioned that makes me think, and I it's I grew up um, in a Catholic church, went to some Catholic school, and the ways in which the church building itself was reimagined based on pre-Vatican II and post-Vatican II. Before Vatican II, it was very hierarchical design where the priest was up front and the congregation was, you know, back in a line. And after Vatican II, you start going to these churches where it's in a circle and there's a person playing guitar. And sometimes Mm -hmm. church buildings were doing both right upstairs was the pre-Vatican II and then downstairs were all where the kids went with the guy with guitar uh, sitting cross-legged on the floor. And, you know, even the process of reimagining a church, building a worship space because of the philosophy that was dominant. And you mentioned like 1950s design of schools. In what ways, I'm curious, does the philosophy of pedagogy of education influence and impact what it is that you're doing and also how you envision it influences the pedagogy by by virtue of how it's designed? That's a great question, Gary. Um, And thanks for sharing that. about kind of the church layout. Um, I, I, I've been aware, more cognizant of the fact that even like theatrical performances are kind of focusing on more of a theater in the rounds. Right. It's sort of like people are really wanting kind of a more 360 degree engagement kind of in the world. And certainly with educational environments, um, gosh, the evolution of, of the, what the classroom looks like has really changed uh, over time. Um, the fact that, you know, uh, learning, you know, used to happen kind of within a lecture type setting where, right. uh, similar to what you just described about the priest being at the front of the room, the teacher is like, you know, in one space, it's all desks faced in one direction, kind of lecture based solely. Um, there's been, you know, uh, there's an evolution in teaching that's a lot more project based as a, as a reflection of, of how, um, people, um, or how our society really does need to work in a more collaborative fashion, how jobs of the future and, you know, jobs now, um, you know, it's, there's a lot more collaboration. There's less of kind of a siloed kind of thinking. So in the educational environment, you know, there are many types of, of, there are many projects that we're working on that are renovating us, a kind of a traditional, um, standard classroom (laughs) that, you know, a double loaded corridor where classrooms on both sides, both sides of a double loaded corridor, um, envision that floor plan where, you know, some of the classrooms remain, but you have a lot of open space, other types of spaces for large and small group learning. Um, uh, you know, this is me describing it because I can't show you kind of the floor plans, but what they do is they, they really kind of allow teachers and students to engage in different types of of teaching and learning so that, um, you know, students who are working, you know, even if it's in a four, four walls class, 960 square foot classroom, how do we design that classroom so that every wall can be a teaching wall? Right. Uh, you know, even if the walls, maybe not the, the teaching, it's maybe students presenting and putting up projects to present in a corner, you know, utilizing the corners of the room. Um, as, you know, different types of furniture, flexible furniture that allows students to either be in a lecture-based mode or, <laughs> right. or um, doing different types of types of teaming. So, I guess um, you know, just to answer it is, is how do we build environments that allow for flexibility and um, kind of break open that box to say, 
teaching needs to happen in a lot of teaching and learning needs, you know, really does happen in a, in a multitude of fashions. So the environment um, kind of needs to be engineered to, to allow for that and empower uh, different types of learning, you know, the ability to go outside and learn like, like what we were seeing um, as we walked the campuses yesterday, you know, just, uh, we also walked into a classroom that actually was a, a microcosm of that. It was um, uh, the, the, the university was um, the program required or wanted them to build kind of lecture based classrooms that had the tiered seating right. that you would see at a university environment where you've been in a lecture before. Right. I think they wanted like three of those. And um, some of the, some of the faculty was like, look, God, you know, those types of spaces really limit what you can do. Why don't we do one of those um, and then maybe the other two kind of rethink what this, this, um, 140 or 120, uh, student capacity space could be. So we walked into the room and, uh, there were different arrangements. There was like some couch furniture seating and throughout the room, there was some tables set up. There was oh, two, there was couches, like, there, eh? were, there were like, there were, yeah, exactly. Uh, couches and chair. I mean, it was, there were within this huh. space and so the teacher could, and, she, and basically the, the faculty member walking us through said some teachers love this space and some teachers don't know what to do with it. Right. Um, on the walls was like a ton of, you know, flexible, like the whole walls you could write on. There were uh, monitors all over the place or, you know, it was just had like within this room, you could fit 120 people. Um, but it allowed for them to work together in different ways within this larger space. Right. <laughs> and throwing yeah. on my teacher hat here really quick, because I you know, teach at university. I often find that do the, we talk about the teachers, but do the students want to put forward that amount of work or they just want to show up and zone out? You know, it's asking the students to do more as part of the process of education along with the faculty. So while it changes how the faculty is working, this more collaborative model actually calls for the students to do more at the same time. And, and I found to varying degrees that students are on board with that or not. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine, you know, I, th I think what, it, what we try to do is empower, and, well, creating spaces that, that serve kind of both right. types of, you know, we want to be inclusive too. And right. so the idea, even the idea of having a retreat is really important in these spaces. Um, and that's kind of a biophilic um, concept yeah. is the idea that, you know, when we look at schools, the second homes, it's like with, you know, you have a variety of spaces in your home um, in an educational environment, um, how do we challenge, you know, not challenge, but also provide, accommodate everyone and provide spaces that allow for that kind of retreat. Everyone needs to get away sometimes. <laughs> um, and, you know, even within a space that's really dynamic, how can you create a little area that is, that can be a retreat so that, um, students who, and, and those kinds of scene were included in this space. Like I said, right. um, there were a lot of tables and then, Kind of in the corners of the room, there were couches set up in different ways, and I can imagine a student who might be overwhelmed would maybe go sit over there and right. kind of, you know, go to a place on a bit on the fringes of the room, but still being kind of included. Hmm. Is that? I mean, that makes me think that. Um, I mean, there's a I think a ton of interesting threads to pull on there, and one is making me think about. You know, we've seen a pretty big shift in terms of architecture around tech. In, in tech firms, you know, pick your Google, your Microsoft, right? Where they have, you know, kind of chill spaces and, and cafeterias. And, you know, I mean, on some level, they're pulling from other third spaces, coffee shops, 
things that are more at home kind of wellness spaces. And so I'm curious too, just like thinking about a, a broader trend in, in architecture, has there been kind of influence in that space where we're seeing some of the same kind of designs that like filtered through tech companies or is it, are we seeing kind of a broader conversation where we're, we're more concerned with human wellness, right? And so we want to make sure that across spaces that we're designing for, that we are looking for ways for people to be to be well. So um, I, don't know, I don't know if that question makes sense, but it's kind of like, are we seeing a trend come from from tech? Or are we seeing it kind of a broader conversation about what does it mean to be well in spaces and how do we design for that? Absolutely, Adam. I think both things are happening and it's wonderful. As, um, you know, districts... Uh, certain districts that we're working with, we're working with a district who is fantastic. They're down in San Jose. So they're thinking, and, and they're, this district is led by an architect who's now the director of facilities. Um, and the fact that they're kind of embedded in that environment, um, it, it has influenced their thinking about the way that that school is planned. They're also a district that um, is, is, uh, is incredibly concerned about um, providing for the community and having a student-centered environment that does address wellness and mental health. Most, most districts are, which is wonderful because it's really come to the forefront, mental health and wellness um, over the last couple of years. And that's, you know, one of the, one of the many kind of silver linings of COVID that it really brought that to the forefront. But um, the idea of tech innovation influence in the district um, is, is, is a wonderful thing because it, it's kind of rethinking um, number one, looking at places that um, students want to spend their time, looking at where students want to spend their time when they're not at school and using those as, um, as a way to kind of design spaces where students want to be. And so, you know, it goes well, well beyond the kind of warm, safe and dry concept. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so their school campuses are some of the most dynamic, exciting campuses I've ever been in because they, um, they really do create spaces that students, um, I was walking through their student union, <laughs> like there, there's always students there. It's always open, you know, it's like really student centered. It's also community center. They have wellness centers on the campus. Um, so they can kind of address healthcare. Um, they really leveled the idea of, of stigma, you know, any socioeconomic disparities, which is also a huge wellness thing because of the visible social socioeconomic disparities on a campus really stigmatize mm-hmm. and, and, and influence negative, you know, mm. um, negative kind of mental health of the students. So they they leveled out what used to be kind of subsidized lunch area, and the students who weren't having subsidized lunch would be kind of eating in a different place. You know, it was very visible mm. who was getting subsidized lunch, and what they said was, "We're going to level that whole thing. Everyone gets a, a so in the student union projects, <laughs> they have like a little mini bank um, storefront and all the students go to this mini bank storefront. They get their card loaded, either it's self-paid or it's, you know, subsidized. Everyone has the same card. The food service looks kind of like a food court in a mall. Um, it's um, self-serve. You can see the healthy food being made. Um, the whole space is really designed to, um, to really level out and create some equity and, um, the amount of pride and ownership the students have in this space is incredible to see. I walked through when the um, World Cup is happening and the union, they have huge big jumbotron monitors in the union that sometimes they have, mm. um, they, they, they show a lot of like kind of world sporting events or sometimes on the screen is a picture of um, bamboo or it's like, you know, it's just a very dynamic, vibrant space that everyone kind of really wants to be in. Um, and you know, kind of across districts, I think the idea of, of how we address wellness is um, something really on everyone's mindset. 
So the idea of, of kind of serving the family as well. Um, we're working with a district that has um, family centers that are kind of tied to the front entry of the school, but it's separate, separate entry, but connected to the main entry and, and families can go there and get kind of legal counseling or help with housing or help with learning English as a second language or other, you know, uh, other resources that really sometimes, you know, there's dental care offered. Um, so, you know, I really love the idea that schools, the centers of community are really starting to, you know, be influenced by the larger community and also take on the responsibility of how do we, how do we serve the community, um, you know, in its entirety. Hmm. Does that answer your question? I know that kind of went a bit all over the place. Um, (laughs) That that and more. Yeah. I mean, there's such such interesting pieces there. Um, I mean, actually I'm going to just, I'm thinking here too, that like, uh, since I asked, a, is there a tech influence question? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm thinking reverse now to Gary's uh, Catholic Church example. With the rise of schools as community centers, I think it's really fascinating. Um, you know, in its part, there was some interesting pushback a few years ago when uh, Apple uh, was talking about making their stores into these like community hangout spots, and people were like, "That's just a cheap shopping ploy," you know. But interesting to think about this as a school is that is that kind of space. I mean, oftentimes, like you'll see either a church or a school will offer these kind of community services, um, but we typically think about them. Um, at least in certain parts like the American Midwest and American South as churches. So I'm curious in this point too, like with, with the influence of doing that through a school uh, is I think a really interesting space. I don't know if this is part of like a secularization it, it all, you know, consciously or not, but just like it's an interesting contemplation to think about the this as a, a school, as a, this kind of center for community wellness um, and offering these kind of services. I think, I think it's really positive to see this, this kind of development, but um, that kind of struck me as an interesting, I don't know, parallel to what churches used to do. Um, which is mm. different from architecture, but you know. Um, <laughs> well, it's, yeah. it is interesting. I mean, um, a district that we like, we do a lot of joint use facilities that were they're designed so that after school hours, like you know, on the weekends or whatever, um, and this one school we did a new multi-purpose building, you know, so, so that you know you could access restrooms and things like that, and within the multi-purpose. So actually, the commun- community churches are using the space a lot. This multi-purpose space, um, this district that we're working down in San Jose uses this. Um, a program called Facilitron to help you and help you find spaces on these school campuses that you could rent out for a wedding reception oh, wow. or, um, you know, really, and it helps put money back into the schools. And then <clears throat> kind of another aspect I wanted to point out, Adam, with regards to kind of tech is, is that thinking about like in a, in a tech space, um, one thing that's really that happens a lot is that you don't have spaces kind of dedicated to one use. It mm. seems like they're really enforcing like spaces are really dynamic. You don't have kind of siloed functions of spaces and you allow for people to kind of use it in multi- multiple kinds of ways. And that's really important to us when we're doing school design, because often, you know, on a, a huge amount of the percentage of time we're working with such, you know, we're trying to maximize the, the funding and we don't want to overbuild or build space that's going to sit vacant you know, right. a number of periods a mm-hmm. year. Number one, that really, um, it, it kind of pulls energy from the campus. You don't want to have rooms that are, aren't occupied. So spaces, even like a performing arts theater that we're doing with them, it doesn't have fixed seating because their prior, um, their prior performing arts building, they were aware that it was closed a large amount of the year. They only had performances, you know, a few times a year. So this, New performing arts building has telescoping seating so that when they have a performance, it can function as a, as performing arts, but it can also, 
be used as a larger student gathering area. Um, so just the idea of, of the tech spaces being really kind of dynamic and, and um, being able to be used in a number of ways, I think, you know, that's, that's something that we're, we're kind of influenced by and it's, you know, economic, <laughs> it's economically um, beneficial as well as it's beneficial for the school environment to have this uh, campus, uh, a dynamic kind of campus uh, environment that can uh, be fully utilized um, throughout the course of a day. And then, you know, again, as you said, after hours for community use. It, it, so much when we talk about experience design, when I teach about it in school, when we talk about here in the podcast, there's always this, or typically the big element of culture change of some sort, right? We're designing new experiences that depart from the old experiences. And this in some way, shape or form involves a small or major change in culture. And I'm just imagining, and I live in a place that has some rather dated schools that are in need of, uh, you know, massive revamping or reconstruction. But then when you go to people and are like, here's all the things we want this school to be, and you're dealing with folks who are being asked to, through their taxes, pay for it, or they have an old image of what a school is. How much of your job then is going in there and trying to educate folks on why this is a good idea, why these kinds of changes are important, and how, not necessarily say that the model that they were under of just two classes on each side and you know, the little desks and all of that teacher in front wasn't bad, but these are new ways of considering what we're doing and how we should be doing things and to get their buy-in because ultimately I'm getting for some of these projects, at least community buy-in becomes an essential element. Absolutely. Gary, that's a really great point. Um, you know, and, and folks are kind of at different stages of, right. of you know, we, 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 we're aware of working with different different districts have different mindsets and what we try to do is influence what is or we we advocate for um provide an environment that really does um does allow for adaptability and so it, you know it can be used as a, in a lecture-based approach um it's not to say it can't but allowing it to have the ability to function in different ways is really important so with stakeholder engagement we do a lot of visioning we do a lot of um we also do tours of campuses too. We like to kind of show people. I mean, I always learn by seeing too, um, you know, to be part of an organization like the Association for Learning Environments, um, which I am up in, in, in Northern California, but all over the country, uh, one of the resources they provide is, is, um, is these educational tours that we invite our district folks to, um, to really, because we understand really experiencing a space, you know, can really kind of be beneficial experiencing, you know, witnessing how it can function. Um, but, um, you know, approaching people um, with the idea, you know, listening, we are learning back and forth every day from districts on, on getting their, you know, dreams and wishes on what, you know, what worked for them. But also um, I think feel like our role is to, um, is to really provide an environment that um, is, allows for flexibility and adaptability so that it can serve them. <laughs> it can serve them in a traditional model right. and it can serve them in, in other different ways because we certainly are cognizant of the fact that, um, you know, there's not just one way of teaching, but when we design space and, and um, create improvements, um, that it has a life that, you know, can go 30, 40 years out. And for us, that means, you know, really includes a lot of, you know, adaptability and flexibility kind of built in. One, one of the areas that, I mean, I've seen you write about this elsewhere too, but I think it's, it seems like a really pertinent place that I'd love to get your thoughts on is designing in this way 
around like career, um, what they call career technical education spaces, like designing for the, the thinking about this in, in the future context, because a lot of the jobs that kids will need in 30 years don't exist yet. Right. And so it's like, how do we, how do we think about that? You know, so I, I love the idea of both like adaptable design and, and how do we build flexibility into in multi-purpose spaces. Um, so I'm curious to kind of hear about a bit about your process and just your thoughts on this in terms of like, as we are thinking about the kinds of spaces that might be needed in a classroom in 30 years for stuff we don't quite know exists yet or doesn't exist yet. How do we, how do we begin to plan for that, that kind of scenario? That's a great question, Adam. Um, there's a there's a concept of a kind of open building concept, which is something that we look at a lot, especially with the CTE spaces, because of what you just described is the fact that we don't know what the careers are going to be, you know, in the next 20, 30 years. So um, we, we try to look at space, like we try to look at how we can design a, a building or space so that it, it can be... Um, as economically adaptable in the future as possible so that it can flex and, and evolve. So with CTE, often you have a lot of, you know, infrastructure that's needed. You have compressed air, you know, you have maker spaces that, you know, you have um, ceiling mounted outlets. So you can have, you know, a lot of, a lot of things happening within the room um, in a, in a fashion where you're not bound to a wall. Um, things like the structural system to allow for interior uh, partitions to move or change easily, you know, so with, you know, with our California building code, you know, restrictions, we're trying to be creative about where the shear walls and things like that are located to allow the space to nimbly and, and inexpensively be adapted. Um, sometimes there's, there's the idea of like a little bit of redundancy in electrical or mechanical. Um, but if it's a, if it's a slightly increased first cost, um, somewhere down the road, it's going to be less expensive to, to change the space up if you have a little bit of, of, of redundancy in the infrastructure to help support, um, you know, less expensive improvements that will uh, really set, set the room up or the space up for, for kind of future uses that we're unaware of. So those are some of the ideas that we, um, that we advocate for, especially in these CTA spaces. So, yeah. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Because I, th- I think it's a really interesting um, set of questions to think about, too, because it's oftentimes, you know, in a, in a experience design context, we see people, they jump to a digital solution, right? Which is different, obviously, than building a, a space in which I'm going to interact with other people, um, you know, and we're seeing the interesting rise of AR in the kind of um, in the VR spaces, but also getting to augmented reality in terms of like what, how we could incorporate the digital and physical, but even when we kind of talk about what the physical space itself needs to be, I think is really important, you know? So even the, the uh, example of having plugs that are easily accessible on the roof, you know, that can pull down versus, you know, only on the socket on the floor um, can make a huge difference. So I know that, that's super helpful to think about because uh, I think it's really, it's a really compelling area to, to make sense of because oftentimes too, it's like, uh, I mean, in a total, you know, anecdote that my, uh, my dad has to replace uh, part of his roof now because the, uh, the air conditioner leaked into the attic recently. And so just contemplating when you have to make a change like that, like it's, it's a lot of work to then change part of a floor, part of a wall, part of a, you know, part of the roof. And some of it can be drywall. Some of it can be, you know, old two by four. Some of it can be PVC piping, some of it can be metal piping. So, I mean, even as, I mean, I'm now thinking about this anew as like the complexity of like the, the types of materials that we have to be aware of. So, um, uh, to me, it's like helpful to think about 
as we contemplate spaces being able to change, you know, how do we, how do we deal with, with kind of unforeseen consequences as part of that too? So it's like, one of those is one of the jobs that we're going to need the space to be training for. The other one is like, how does the space survive uh, physical changes and strange things uh, that might happen such as leaks, you know? So yeah, it's very helpful to think with. I would say also let's like, you know, climate change, right? Cause yeah. the, the idea of, you know, air conditioning is different now than it was by 30 years ago. 20 years ago because it's working harder to do more or, you know, extreme weather. And to me, it's always fascinating. I would be a horrible project manager as an architect. And I'm so glad you're doing this, Mary, because if I was doing it, things would not build because there's like so many things to keep track of. It seems like, like I can't imagine what your spreadsheets must look like in terms of all of these details. And at the end of the day, whether or not the space is used successfully comes down to people like me with my PowerPoints. I mean, it's, there's a lot riding on you know, here's our vision for what this is going to be. And then there's all the variables impact, whether that vision successfully gets enacted. And so many of those things are not in your control as a designer. It's, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, uh, I, I mean, I love, I love my job. It, there, there's a ton of organization, a ton of, uh, a ton of coordinating, um, a lot of rigor, all of the, the, the meshing of art and science, the vision and how technically it can, you know, it needs to be executed so that it is, is successful. Um, yeah, I think when I was younger, I used to get really freaked out and overwhelmed because I'm like, there's just so much to know how, you know, but, uh, you know, at, at a certain point, I mean, I've been doing this almost 30 years and I, there's something new that surfaces every day still for me. I'm just like, right. wow, I've never <laughs> come across that before. And just understanding that, you know, I don't have to have it all in my brain, but I know where to, right. I know who to go to, who to talk, you know, brains, you know, you have resources, we have our consultants, we have, you know, uh, you know, it's like, it's just, how do you kind of execute it? So we, I kind of think of it as like connecting the orchestra and like when it's, um, you know, working with our clients, it's like, we're, we're creating music with them. And, um, and, you know, how does this all kind of create, create harmony together? But it is, it's like a, it's a mathematical <laughs> problem. And it's also an emotional problem. It's about, um, aesthetics and feeling and, and also health and wellness and energy conservation. Um, you know, choosing the right system so that they're right size. You started with kind of right. AC. You were talking about AC and, um, you know, going into like kind of, kind of like what our responsibility is as educational architects to, um, to address the fact that buildings, you know, provide a huge negative impact in the environment. Right. And so what's our role in, um, and, um, in, in, in building and designing. So at HED, um, um, we are fully committed and, you know, we are a sustainably responsible firm. So, um, you know, we're constantly driving high performance work that both is, High performance in, turn of, in terms of energy conservation, decarbonization goals, right. but also um, hand in hand with uh, how it can be sustainable and healthy for students and everyone who's on our campuses. Um, people perform better. <laughs> um, right. There's better academic outcomes. There's better mental health outcomes. Um, um, yeah, you, you. It is a. It's an organizational uh, fun. Fun, uh, fun, challenging role that we're in, but I, I feel very grateful every day for the work that I get to do. 
since it's just us talking, tell us how difficult faculty are to work with. It's okay. You can tell me. <laughs> it's all right. So talk about creating harmony together. I can, you know, I mean, I've been in rooms as a department chair when I was department chair where architects have come in and tried to engage with faculty around new creative thinking. And I'm just like, oh boy. So how, how hard, how impossible are faculty? Is that a leading question, Adam? Did I lead her in that question? No, not at all. You're not leading the witness <laughs> at all. No. <laughs> Uh, impossible. I think they're um, Im, uh, imperative. <laughs> I would like to turn turn the word impossible. I like that. Imperative. Imper- imperative to include in in our process, and um, something that's really important to me is just is the engagement process because I've had the um, I've worked on projects where where one superintendent wanted to be the voice of the whole project, and oh, wow. we weren't getting we weren't we weren't we weren't getting user input and it was really uh, thankfully that changed somewhere during the course where we still had the ability to change change direction and um because we we needed that input and certainly we understand faculty also leaves but um so we don't want to design for one you know principal's preference you know solely we want to have it be a little bit more universal touch but um getting getting input is, is so key to our process and 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 you mentioned kind of consensus earlier. I mean, you know, we need to. <laughs> we always start. I mean, even in, even in our interviews, I like to start with a, um, you know, what is you know, what do you see as the biggest challenges in this project, and what keeps you up at night? What do you? What are your greatest fears? And we we start by getting, uh, getting that. You know, we really start by listening. We want to hear, <laughs> hear what's you know what's keeping you up at night. What's what the challenge is, and then conversely. We kind of ask, um, ask what success looks like. You know, what are your host, hopes and aspirations? Um, and we get so much excellent feedback. It gives us the foundation to start. You know, we're, we're in a conversation with you. Uh, we're not successful if it's not working <laughs> for you. And how do we get it to work? Is it start by like, hey, we're all in this together. I mean, um, we're a team. And, um, and, you know, we're also aware that, you know, like we're in a, we're in a relationship where we're, you know, we need to build, establish trust with you, and, right. and how to do that is really, um, you know, we're partners in, in creating creating something that's going to be here for a long time. And if we don't engage with with um, with you, and you know, a lot of times it's it's kind of dictated by um, by a pro- by a, a, a school district process, but we certainly always advocate and try to get get um, have that stakeholder engagement process be really robust because um, it creates the foundation for you know. For, for building that consensus and saying, what are the priorities? Uh, what do we absolutely need this project to do? And then what are some of the other wants, you know? Right. And so when things happen, like what's been happening over the last many years where things come in at like crazy, crazy escalated costs, um, where we've had to cut projects by a lot, we've already established what those priorities are right. for faculty, you know, for everyone. So that faculty, you know, so that if, if we can't do this now, it's, it was a bit alternate. We can easily let it go without redesign. And um, everyone kind of understands that that, that was like the wish list. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, I'm also <laughs> kind, of, kind of curious when you ask that question, who do you, what do you see as the biggest challenge in this project? Does anybody ever go with that guy? See that guy right there? <laughs> that, person. <laughs> that person right there, the philosophy <laughs> department, always a pain. <laughs> They're going to be the biggest challenge. That person right there, or, you know, just impossible to work with. <laughs> I, I don't think I've had that one person, but I've, I've been standing in front of a group of people kind of sharing, trying to go through this engagement process and having, you know, people get really upset about why we can't, 
why we can't, I think we should occupy the, we should turn the roof into a, a place uh, for hanging out. And, um, you know, we have this whole roof area and, um, you know, like we, we, you know, my responsibility is to explain, you know, that wasn't the priority of the project. We'd have to add an elevator stop up here. We would, you know, the structural, uh, you know, the, the roof wasn't designed for uh, dead load. It's not, you know, we would have to redo the whole structural system. But so, you know, having that conversation, he felt heard and then he understood. And, right. But, you know, he was pretty upset about what the scope of the project was because he hadn't been uh, participating in it prior. So he was kind of coming in and being like, that's, you know. So it's it's good to have continuity. I think it's always yeah. really difficult. The most difficult things are when we've gone through a process together with a group and some new person kind of enters the picture who doesn't have all that historical. Um, so we kind of have to bring them up to speed and they're like, why did, why is this happening? Um, that's, I think that's my biggest challenge is just when there's not continuity. Um, but you know, when we've gone through a good sound process, we just kind of have to say, this is where we come today. This is how we got here. (laughs) It's interesting you use the term dead load because that's also a term for a lot of faculty. It's dead load. (laughs) (laughs) Same thing. What is your perception? If I can lob a question over to you guys of, of, have you gone through a, a, you know, what is your what do you desire like in a, in a partnership with someone who's shaping your educational environments? I've gone through it. And I, again, I was department chair when a f- architecture firm was coming in and it was interesting because they were trying to sell us on this idea that we really didn't need our own offices. Um, in fact, we could just uh, exist in a space where we could grab an office when it was available and that one to ourselves wasn't necessary for the jobs that we do. And when they said that, I knew things were going to go very badly because um, people quickly got out the pitchforks and the torches because the idea of taking, you know, an office for practical reasons and just for traditional reasons, like this is my office. And I understood what the things they were saying, and you referenced this, where a lot of faculty are in their offices a lot. And there are many months where they're not in their offices. And so if you walk around a campus, it really is not being utilized. And that seems like a tragedy. At the same time, the idea that we're just going to turn this place into an open workspace was, you know, such a radical departure from what faculty want and are used to and what they need that very quickly you saw this kind of attempt for a radical redesign mm-hmm. fall away to more practical decision-making. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that sounds right. I, I mean, I'm thinking back now a number of years, but, but even as a, at a university I used to work at when they did a major overhaul of the campus and they, they kind of knocked down the, the, the original student center to build a new one, um, which they also like redubbed the university center. And, and even that name change kind of indicated a bit of what, what the switch was about instead of being, you know, they, it was still supposed to house the same kind of things of like the, the store where you could buy your spirit gear, you know, one of the cafeterias, um, spots to hang out and talk and stuff. Um, but I went from being kind of a, an older building that had lower roofs to, to a bunch of vaulted ceilings and it changed the dynamic of what it meant to like talk quietly in a space because there's just always this massive echo, you know? So it like, it, it, it altered how people felt comfortable or not comfortable in a space. And so it's an interesting idea that it was a capital investment for the university and it was this beautiful new building, but it, it, uh, it no longer fulfilled the purpose of what, what folks were thinking it should do. Uh, and that was an interesting kind of just challenge. I mean, I had, I had no, I was a staff member and I had nothing to do with it, but it's just this interesting kind of change to watch happen. Um, cause I, I think, you know, what I'm here to, and what I echo with, with, 
what you're both saying too is that there is such an importance of having kind of stakeholder driven design as part of these processes because who's actually going to be using the the facilities in and for what you know and so uh i think it's interesting to you know kind of to, to link this to an idea that we were talking about before too of as, as we think about multi-purpose and adaptive design um you know, do you find that? I mean, I guess like, you know, Gary's question is about our faculty difficult, which is a, a legit question, you know, but do you find that is it, um, do you have certain kind of models that you go through in terms of like encouraging stakeholder engagement development? Like if you're working with a K-12 school, do, is there like PTO meetings, you know, uh, is PTO mean the same thing like parent-teacher organization, not not part-time off? <laughs> um, yeah, parent-teacher. You have things like that, that, you, that you deal with, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we just try to like, knowing how important it is, um, and I've I want to circle back and ask uh, questions about your projects too, because that's those are interesting examples. But um, we we know how important it is to go to where like in order to get that we have to go to where the community is. So hmm. um, so uh, like while we were shaping a project, um, they were having like an after school night where the parents it was the opportunity for the parents uh, to come up, meet with teachers after school, and we knew that was like, going to be a great opportunity. Most of the student population and the parents were going to be there. We wanted to engage all of them. So, you know, we're going to things like that and sharing the, and at that, at that time, I think we had like, you know, we were sharing different options. We do this democracy exercise. That's at some point during the development of the process that we, um, you know, we get kind of people's, people's kind of votes on it and really trying to transparently show what we were doing. Um, ideally, you know, and, like what we do too is like is is during the shaping of a process, uh, we use our tech, technology tools to really um, bring people into the project. We use um, we often do QR codes of our models so that you know, students are so nimble. At, you know, you you click on a QR code and all of a sudden on your phone you're in a space that you can like literally be right. in and mm. rotate 360 degrees. So um, you know the idea that. We can't expect everyone to be able to read a set of drawings and understand what that space is going to look like. And I think that's that's kind of a mistake that happened in the past. Is like we we need to bring the tools and show you what is happening so that you can speak to what your feelings are about it, right? If if I, I'd be curious to know, Adam, in your example, if there was any engagement process and if you know they were kind of sharing the development of the of the design as it went along to say. You know, because we're we're building it. You know, before mm-hmm. <laughs> before it's finished, it'd be really wonderful to invite you into the space so you can <laughs> see it. And that's what we do. Um, and then Gary, I'd love to hear if um, in your process, if um, if based on the faculty's reaction, that they they it sounded like they kind of went full like switch direction pivoted and said okay actually you're going to have these offices it's not going to be open office that would happen yeah well they they they, get, they did give us uh less shelving space than we would really need i mean that was an issue as well i remember we go into our offices the new offices and everyone was complaining that there weren't enough shelves for the books and and the architects they were like well aren't isn't everything just electronic nowadays why do you need more shelving for books we'll just get rid of books and one of the things that it showed me was that I thought about your, your history being so long working in education that I don't know that they got as architects, the culture of higher ed. I don't mm. know if they got who we are. And I actually published a paper with a friend of mine at Bowling Green, who's in industrial design. He's a sociologist on why architects need to be ethnographers. And we published it in an architectural journal. 
Mm, because, awesome. it, you know, it's, it's not just kind of moving into a space and walking around and doing room counts and doing some interviews. It's do you understand the culture, the identity, the meaning of objects? And, and when you make a change and you're giving up a lectern or you're giving up, you know, bookshelves, um, what are you asking people to give up? It's not just a physical artifact you're asking to give up. It might be something closely related to their professional identity and their sense of self. That's, I would love to see your article. I Did you send share it, it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you, Gary. Yeah, that's, that's huge. And, that's, and your own experience of working so long in higher, right? I mean, you, you know, you know, my, you know, my people, right? I mean, these are the people that I've you know, been around teaching for 20 plus years. And it is a different thing that if you're going into a healthcare setting, it's a different yeah. culture versus like Adam said, a tech setting, it's a different culture. So even if you're kind of looking at influences across the artifacts of the space, the technology of the space, the meaning of the space change drastically to give the same structures, different, radically different meanings. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, um, I'm just very full disclosure. I haven't, most of my K-12 career or most of my career I've been focused on K-12. Right. Um, it's fairly recently that, you know, I certainly have, uh, I have a lot of intimate knowledge of, of higher ed environments just through my, through my experiences, but, um, I'm just now starting to kind of focus on higher ed, um, as part of our education studio, which spans community, which includes community libraries, um, K-12 and pre-K and then also higher ed. And, um, I've worked on a number of, of higher ed projects that we, we were doing a project that, um, that there was kind of the same, we, there was an aviation maintenance technology program that was moving into the building uh-huh. and everyone. And this was like, uh, it was a campus, uh, city, city college campus that, um, was a large, um, kind of maker space. It was like they had city build, which is the San Francisco mayor's offices, um, uh, basically teaching people how to build an apprenticeship program. They had automotive, um, you know, well, welding, um, blueprint reading. And with this new program moving into the building, everyone was like, no, there's not enough space. And so we, we went through this capacity analysis and demonstrated for them that there, that there was, and that, and that was just, again, a really transparent process. But right. one of the things we were touching upon is, is um, minimizing the number of offices and we got the same, kind of reaction. And that was kind of exactly what you said. It was kind of my first awareness of the fact that, you know, uh, it is, it's different in a higher ed environment. Um, and, um, but the idea of of us being cultural interpreters and respecting the culture is really important. We can't, um, you know, I'm, I'm in my education, I've learned about architects who try to really force, you know, um, I can't remember there's a, a deconstructivist architect. I can't remember his name, um, but who really would try to design, designing houses for people for the way he felt they should live right. instead of the way mm. they, <laughs> they did live. And, um, you know, just kind of forcing, you know, forcing a behavior change. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's kind of strong. We want to, we want to empower success across the board, um, empower, you know, empower success and, and just for people to thrive. And, right. You know, higher ed environments are your second home too. My office is my second home. (laughs) You know, anywhere we spend a majority of our time is our second home. So it should, it should uh, be somewhere where you can really thrive. Yeah, no, totally. I I think that it's, I mean, I remember something something that was said that like Frank Lloyd Wright's furniture was really nice to look at, but you can't sit in it though. And so it's like kind of a similar idea. It's like, this is how it should look, but how you actually interact with it. Not, not so great. Um, I guess it depends if you're a contortionist or not, but. 
<laughs> you know, but I think, I think that, yeah, I mean, the, the culture, the piece is really important. I mean, and just to, to answer your question too, about like, was there feedback mechanisms at the university I was at at the time? Um, I, I mean, I think that there was, there was some in terms of, uh, you know, overall design. Cause it was, again, it was, it was seven or eight buildings they were doing. This was, you know, I'm just talking about one of them, but there wasn't, as far as I know, you know, feedback of like, is this going to be a useful space? Like, what do you, what do you, do you, do you project certain kind of issues or challenges like this? And so this is something that, I mean, I'm just thinking now as an ethnographer that, um, looking back at that, you know, seeing this, the ways that people interact within a space and how conversations will happen. Um, when we change the physical space that, that will, you know, can again, totally change what the, what the space is for. And so to give it in this case, like a vaulted ceiling, while it can add an, an aspect of grandeur, um, and, and ostentation and, and, and beauty too, right. It can also then go from a, a feeling of an intimate setting to one that's more clinical almost. Right. And so like the, that, that was kind of, I remember one of the the feedback that people had, you know, again, more informally, cause there was not really mechanisms to say Ar- architect, let's not, uh, do that. And I don't blame the architect so much as the, uh, as the, you know, designers at the university that said, we want to do this, this building this way, but it really speaks to the culture question. I think in terms of like, what is it that's going to be helpful for spaces? I mean, the other thing I'm thinking about here too is, uh, now that I have not been there for 10 years, um, do people know <laughs> people that like, were never in the other building? Like this is all they've ever known is this, is this current university center will say, um, I mean, I'm kind of curious now thinking about this, uh, you know, institutional memory, organizational memory, if I'm part of that, right. Um, is not there anymore. And so th- I, I kind of wonder about this, this role too, in terms of, as we think about spaces adapting and cultures within spaces too, um, both designing for people that will be there, but then also thinking about, you know, we're projecting forward. So this is, I mean, also why I was interested in the, the CTE question before too, because in, you know, faculty leave, students leave in, in different spaces, teachers leave in K-12. And so, um, you know, how do we design forward? for places that can both adapt, but then, you know, have also a sense of legacy and, and institutional memory, I think as well. Um, is something else that I think is really important. I don't know if I have a question for that, but I'm just kind of thinking about because culture is, is going to be passed down, you know, inorganically through norms and how we use spaces and behaviors and, and attitudes. And so it's um, kind of interesting to think about the role that, that the space itself will play when the, the organic carriers of culture are not there, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting. And in a lot of projects we especially when we're doing adaptive reuse, it's um, how do we really honor the existing building? Or, or um, I think you're bringing up a really great point that's, that's really, that's um, very profound and it's resonating to me quite a bit. Um, I think I wanted to share another tool that we use sometimes just to get kind of pull from people what success looks like to them in terms of aesthetics. And I think maybe an exercise like this might've really helped or like, you know, like what, what do you want it to feel like? You know, these kinds of questions that we, you know, we do a lot of, you know, we'll, we'll put visioning, we'll welcome them to, to show us images kind of like um, a wish board or whatever, bring, bring images of spaces that you like or materials that you like. And so again, this is like, we're creating a common language together in the process. That's what it's kind of really all about. And that's, that's, how the most successful projects evolve is when you created this common language of what it looks like. And so, you know, us sharing visioning, you know, other project, you know, stuff that's not our work, you know, but like, just, you know, similar types of projects or anything. And, and then inviting, inviting um, stakeholders to share too. It really, I mean, that idea of a common language and what success looks like, what is important to them that, that um, it really kind of flushes out how we can, you know, really be successful creating space together. Hmm. Yeah. That is one of those pieces that, I mean, Gary and I talk about this all the time too, that, um, we can just have with our, with our ethnographer hats on, but just the importance of like designing alongside and with 
community members and stakeholders. Um, and I love this idea of kind of shared visioning practice together and kind of co-creation. Uh, I think I think it's really important because it, you know it it also builds a sense of community. I think I hope between the users of the space and the architects, the designers also, right? So it's not just like we get, we bequeathed this thing to you enjoy it. Right. <laughs> but it's like, we're building this together with you alongside you. And so that way we have a sense of like shared builtness, I guess. Uh, yeah, exactly. We want, I mean, everyone to have a sense of ownership and pride. And that comes with having had a, a being able to participate in it. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's, and it is Very really, satisfying. it is really heavy. Right. Because as a parent, I have three kids, one's going to college next year. And, you know, the idea of I'm dropping my child, my child off here. And now this child is in someone else's care and the emotional nostalgia we have, hopefully for when we went to school. So, I mean, schools amongst many places, maybe just like homes or places of worship, ideally are supposed to have this sense of belonging and safety and care and ownership and fond remembrances. And often that starts with, if not always, well, how it looks, right? Because it can be a wonderful and, you know, they could have be full of wonderful people. But if the building itself is difficult to navigate, and one of my kids, their middle school, I don't know who designed it. I would like to know what they were taking when they did and have some of it because I can't, I, it's like impossible to find your way around the thing, and, you know, just at a basic level. And so it's, their memories of that school while they enjoyed their teachers and enjoyed their friends is all often about what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And, and the school, nightmares of getting lost. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, you know, and it's, I don't know, I'm waxing nostalgic here that, you know, our memories of childhood are often connected to the places we went to school and you're responsible for creating not just education, but creating hopefully those memories of where people went to school. That's, that's, that's pretty heavy when you think about it in those terms, I guess. You got deep yeah, there. That's, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, we are, there's a quote that I love, which is first we shape our, our environments and thereafter they shape us. So it's Winston Churchill, Churchill quote, but it's okay. so true. It's, um, you know, we are shaped by those spaces. I mean, um, that sense of nostalgia and memory and, and we we are part of all everywhere we've been. <laughs> right. I like that. We are part mm-hmm. of everywhere we've been, right? And hopefully everywhere we've been, um, we put part of ours and us in, into part of everywhere we've been as well. And so the di- right. kind of like dialectic relationship between place and person, between culture and people, um, mm-hmm. you know, is huge. And I think that uh, as I've talked to some architects, obviously talking to you right now, you get a different appreciation of the enormity of that design process that uh, that goes into thinking about not just creating a place that I think, as you said, you know, is um, what were the three things that you said, warm, safe, and dry, but also, you know, comforting and welcoming and creating a sense of belonging and community. It's a, it's a responsibility that I embrace, um, but it, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, Part of why I love what I do is uh, working with people and and really helping to shape success and places where they can thrive and feel positively impacted by. <laughs> you know, it, it, it almost makes me want to go back to elementary school. Almost. <laughs> yeah. uh, <you> know. <laughs> Dynamic screen sounds super cool, you know. <laughs> uh, 
No, I love it. Yeah, uh, Mary, I just want to say thanks. This has been a, a super fascinating conversation. Um, I, I'm walking away with a ton of ideas and generative thoughts. And so I just want to thank you for taking the time to chat with us and share your experience, design perspectives and architecture uh, and thinking about adaptive spaces and resilience in, in schools and um, helping us kind of think about what the future could be. I thank you for your time. I really enjoyed it. Gary, Adam, wonderful to meet you. We'd like to thank Mary Rupenthal, the Associate Principal at Head and ESG Advocate for talking about creating educational environments and how to create effective learning experiences. You can see more about Mary's work and Head in our show notes. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. What have been some of the best or worst learning environments that you've had or had experiences in? And where do you see the future of learning environments going? You know, we can't go purely digital, can we? Who knows? I don't and know. do you remember transparencies and photocopy paper? Speaking I of do. Not, not digital. Uh, those are those always a classic way to go, right? Um, so you can hop in the conversation or you can even just if you want to, you know, drop in the mail of transparency and send it over to us and we'll put it on the overhead projector. Shoot us a message over at experience or shoot us a message at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or get in the conversation on our LinkedIn page. And I wish everybody a happy new year, happy holidays, and thanks for making this a great year and experience by design. We're always happy, happy to have you on board, listening, enjoying the content, and enjoying the guests that we love having conversations with. If you're a company and you want to expand your profile, by all means, reach out to us at Experience by Design. Happy to talk about having you host, sponsor an episode, being a guest on the show, or just kind of reaching out to say hi and give us a virtual hug. And if you have any other feedback you'd like to express, even the fun hate mail we sometimes are getting now, which is even welcome, <laughs> shoot us that at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. You can always head over to our website to subscribe and stay on top of all the exciting news in the Experience by Design community. And with that, we will see you all for our next episode and the new year on Experience by Design. <laughs>